0: Conversations at the speed of sound. Silhouetted against a three-quarter moon,
1: giant Lancasters
0: loom darkly, At aerodromes all over the country the scene is being repeated. A thousand bombers are massing. As the huge planes wheel about for the takeoff, the Perspex reflects the light of the moon, and the oldest lamp flashes as if in answer. The flare path floodlight is on to guide the pilots as they take their 30-ton aircraft off the ground. The throbbing drone of bombers already in the air, the rising crescendo of others mounting to join them, and the night is filled with the music of a thousand planes. soundtrack of a 1944 British Pathé newsreel, providing a wartime audience with what we can only imagine was a thrilling, if somewhat poetic, commentary under the sight and sound of Avro Lancaster's of RAF Bomber Command, taking off for a night raid over Europe. Have you ever wondered, by the way, how hundreds of aircraft with 1940s technology found their way at night to very specific targets, hundreds of miles away, and reliably found them? Well, dear listener, I am delighted to tell you that you are about to find out. Hello and welcome to this episode of MAC-1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I am a QAM volunteer and will be your host for this fascinating insight into the career of Toowoomba Boy Air Vice Marshal Don Bennett of the wartime Pathfinder Force. I was enthralled by this story, I have to tell you, the details of which I knew very little until I sat down to talk with QAM volunteer Ian Campbell. As you're about to hear, Ian is a treasure trove of knowledge about Bennett and he knows how to put the story together in an interesting way. Ian is an author and historian and is currently in charge of the voluminous archival material that QAM possesses about Don Bennett. Well, we're sitting in a very special room in Hangar 1 of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. It's called the Don Bennett Office. Now, this office sits in a larger exhibition space dedicated to the Pathfinder force which was itself a part of bomber command in World War 2. And I'm sitting here with a man named Ian Campbell who is also a Queensland Air Museum volunteer. Good day, Ian. Good day. How are you, Gary? I'm well, thanks for asking. And thanks very much for giving me the time to talk because this is something I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. I've been intrigued by this little corner of uh, the museum and by the history that it represents. Can you give our listeners, just to get started, a little bit of background on Bomber Command and the Pathfinder's force, uh, Pathfinder Force's place within it?
1: Yes, well, you'll recall that back during the Second World War, the Royal Air Force had a number of commands, and the one that would be most famous would be fighter command. Now, that was the one that was responsible for winning the Battle of Britain against the German Luftwaffe when it came through in 1940. But there were a number of other commands as well. There was the coastal command, which was responsible for doing things like sinking U-boats, and there was also ferry command, which was responsible for bringing aircraft over from North America. And then there was... Bomber Command. The only problem with it was that Bomber Command had a number of uh, quite old aircraft that carried quite small bomb loads. And worse than anything is that they had a very great difficulty hitting the targets. And as a result of that, there was a report that was done in August 1941 where they did a statistical analysis of how accurate Mm. bomber command was in hitting the targets, and they found out basically it was woeful. Mm. And as a result, they started to discuss the possibility of what was called a target-finding force, of which Don Bennett, who was not then part of the Royal Air Force, was brought in for discussions And it ultimately led in July 1942 to the formation of the Pathfinder Force. And its job was to lead the way for Bomber Command in getting to the designated targets, marking those targets such that Bomber Command could hit them more accurately. Okay,
0: well, I'd love to dedicate an episode to everything that's around about this office that deals with the history of Bomber Command and and Pathfinders and so on. But let's just concentrate now on this Don Bennett office that we've mentioned a couple of times now. Uh, Who was Don Bennett and how did he come to be involved with the Pathfinder force?
1: Well, the joy of this story is that Don Bennett was a Queenslander. (laughs) He actually was born in Toowoomba, just up the range from here, and in fact he spent his teenage years in Brisbane. And uh, he considered doing a number of things uh, with his life, either to become a a lawyer like uh, some of his brothers or a doctor like one of his brothers uh, or to follow his father into the real estate business or, in fact, to go out and manage the uh, family farm out west. Uh, And he decided, after considering all those options, that what he really wanted to do was to have a career in aviation. So in 1930, he managed to get into a small intake into the RAAF, and he went to Point Cook to do his training. But with the onset of the Depression, uh, they were only able to have a limited number of pilots at the RAAF, so he was given what was called a short service commission, uh, which was to go and serve with the RAF in England, and that he did from 1931 to 1935. And in the course of that, he actually did quite a bit of flying on flying boats, Come the end of 1935, when his short service commission had finished, he got married to a lovely Swiss lady by the name of Lee. He returned to Australia looking at the possibility of uh, taking up commercial aviation here. There was nothing really for him and he went back to England and he joined Imperial Airways. Now, Imperial Airways was basically the equivalent, the British equivalent of Qantas. And for a number of years, from 1936 onwards, he actually did the Mediterranean route and he also did the African route. So he was flying all the way from England to Alexandria and then all the way down to South Africa and back. And uh, there's many stories told of flying low in these flying boats over various places like Kenya. and uh, So that he had an absolutely wonderful time flying as a captain for Imperial Airways on flying boats. And then the war started, and what he did was he was asked to come and rescue the uh, Polish government headed by General Sikorski, who was holed up at Biskoros in France, and he flew down there, and he picked them up and brought them back to England. And as a result of that, he was asked to take on a role that was called the Flying Superintendent, of what was then Atlantic Ferry. And it goes back to something that I was talking about before, and that was that they were having problems replenishing the supply of planes in England from America. And as a result of that, uh, due to the U-boat sinking, and as a result of that, they asked Bennett, is it possible to actually fly the North Atlantic from Canada to England in winter? And most people said it can't be done. Mm. And Bennett went to America, he went off to Lockheed, he looked at the planes that they had, and he determined that it could be done. And as flying superintendent, he did lead the very first North Atlantic flight under what was then Atlantic Ferry. And he was there for uh, a bit over a year.
0: What aircraft were they flying then?
1: Well, they started off with the Lockheed Hudson, And so they were flying those in, and ultimately they would fly in the Liberators. Uh, And as a result of demonstrating that, he was brought back into the Royal Air Force, having been away for four years. And initially, because of his expertise in navigation, they posted him to a navigation school, and he requested uh, to be appointed to the front line in 1941 he really wanted to be out there joining everybody else in the battle against Germany and he was appointed as wing commander as head of 77 squadron and from there 10 squadron and in the course of that he was sent off to lead a group to destroy the German battleship Tirpitz which was holed up in a field. And uh, in the course of doing what was effectively a suicidal run on the Tirpitz, he was shot down. He managed to get his crew out. He bailed out last. And with one of his crew, he managed to hike through the snow all the way to the Swedish border, got down into Sweden, and uh, as a result of some connections that he had there, was flown back to England, was awarded a Distinguished Service Order, and within a month got a call from then Air Chief Marshal Bomber Harris to say, we're going to establish what was the target-finding force, now the pathfinder force, and we want you to head it up. 5th of July 1942.
0: As you're speaking, I'm thinking navigator, navigation, you know, flying across the North Atlantic in winter, fly, all of these exercises that they were performing at the time relied on so many factors. But navigation was in its infancy, was it not? I mean, in terms of this kind of high demand flying, was Bennett himself, you say he was a—he had an expertise in navigation as well?
1: Yes, in fact, he had developed this when he was first uh, in doing the flying boats pilots course at RAF Calshot back in 1932. Uh, he had a particular skill, mathematical skill in trigonometry, etc. And he almost fell into this. He wanted to be a fighter pilot. And once he had got onto flying boats and they were starting to fly offshore and those sorts of things, of course, when you fly out to sea, navigation becomes a particular issue. Navigation was quite rudimentary at that time, but he had a particularly good skill at it. And he was not only good at mathematics he had an absolutely phenomenal memory Mm. and what he was therefore able to do was to take uh, books of nautical tables etc and summarize them and have them all in his head (laughs) and he was able to do quite what a lot of other people were were, were having great difficulty doing and uh, so he started to develop a reputation for his navigational prowess and then Interestingly enough, when he was starting to see at the beginning of 1934 that he only had about 18 months to go on his RAF commission and it looked like he was having to go back to civilian flying, he needed to look at how he might re-enter the civilian flying world. And he decided that because navigation was the area that he showed greatest prowess, He would go for what was called the first class navigator's license. Now, because many pilots uh, didn't travel terribly far in those times, they were not traveling across the oceans. This was a license which uh, enabled you really to go anywhere in the world, but it was very demanding and very few people had it. And he decided on the 1st of January, 1934, that he would get this license. He was only a youngster. Mm and uh he studied over the course of 11 weeks and to his great surprise he passed and he would say that he was only the seventh person in the world to gain that license Uh, that of course is a little disputed but let's just say that very very few people mm -hmm. had this license and as a result people even his very young age people in the RAF were starting to come to him and ask for his advice on navigational things so developing on that, leading all the way into the war, he was seen as having this particular navigational skill. I should add that uh, on the honeymoon, on his way to Australia and back from Australia at the end of 1935, he decided to write a book on navigation, which is what normally people do when they're on their honeymoon. (laughs) And uh, his lovely wife, Lee, took notes. We have the notes here. And uh, he wrote the first chapter on the way to Australia and then on the way back he wrote the rest of this textbook. And really what he'd set out to achieve was uh, something that he felt the air ministry had not achieved Mm -hmm. in setting the course for the first-class navigator's licence. And in fact, it became an international standard work for a number of years.
0: Are you beginning to get the impression that Ian knows a thing or two about Don Bennett? And that he knows how to weave a good narrative? Well, let me pause the conversation here to let you know that Ian has recently published a book. A biography of another Australian wartime pilot, a Queenslander by the name of Keith Watson. Himself a Pathfinder. It's published by Big Sky Publishing, and it's called Thinks He's a Bird. Now, Ian told me that Keith Watson had kept an 804-page, five-volume personal diary of his experiences as an Air Force pilot, and Ian has put that together with letters and logbooks and the history of the time, and spun the story of Watson's life before, during, and after the war. What does a postal clerk in a small western Queensland town do when he comes home after the war, having put his life in jeopardy and piloted the most advanced aircraft in the world? Does he go back to being a small-town postal clerk? Now, I've read Ian's book, and it does what all good biographies do. It introduced me not only to the life and deeds of a fascinating individual but it let me have a sense of meeting him as a flawed, fallible human being who had faced the great challenges of his time. Thinks He's a Bird by Ian Campbell. It's available on Booktopia and in all good bookstores everywhere, and it's also available as an e-book. QAM volunteers can obtain a signed, discounted copy directly from Ian Now back to the Don Bennett office.
1: So on the 5th of July, he was appointed as uh, Air Officer, commanding of the Pathfinder Force. At the beginning of 1943, it was made a bomber command group on its own. Now, Bomber Command was made up of a number of uh, high-level groups, and those groups then had squadrons in them. And this, as the Pathfinder Force had proved itself, Bomber Harris now made it a command in its own right, and Don Bennett, at the ripe old age of 32, was appointed an Air Commodore. And then a year later, in January 1944, he was appointed Air Vice Marshal. Now, we know from a previous podcast of yours that we have an Air Vice Marshal here as one of our volunteers, Dave Dunlop. And uh, that's the equivalent of a two-star general. And so Don Bennett at 33 became the youngest Air Vice Marshal in the history of the RAF, and he remains so.
0: He remains sir. yes. OK, wow. That record has never been surpassed.
1: So far as I know. Mm -hmm.
0: So he's now Air Officer Commanding Pathfinder Force. What was his brief?
1: Well, he really had to take a ramshackle group uh, of uh, bombers and ideas and theories, etc., and forge it into a credible force. And he was given very little time to do it. He was given just over a month by Bomber Harris, who demanded that by the middle of August he was to start leading out uh, the main force of bombers in Mm. Bomber Command, and so he had very little time to do it. He didn't have uh, a lot of good aircraft, but what he did have was an agreement that he could start to go out and get some really good crews. And so he went off to other groups in Bomber Command and said, we'd really like to get some of your people who have shown themselves to be able to bomb accurately and we want to train them up to do it even better.
0: Was it his idea, his scheme, to illuminate targets uh, by sending uh, aircraft ahead of the bombers? Was that his idea?
1: It had been part of a discussion at Air Ministry and the RAF4 a couple of years when they were having discussions discussions about the target-finding force, which now became the Pathfinder Force. And so there were things that were already in the wings. And, uh, for instance, if we look at navigation technology, there was a group called the Telecommunications Research Establishment. Uh, People might know the name Bernard Lovell. Who was into astronomy he was part of that during the war and and was known to bennett and what they were doing was that they were working on various techniques using radar etc that would enable aircraft to fly more accurately over occupied europe at night time so they were working on various systems and in fact the first thing that Don Bennett did the very day that he was appointed was to go down to the Telecommunications Research Establishment, down to what they call the boffins, and to start discussing how he might use this navigation technology. One of the interesting things about this is that we take it for granted that aircraft these days have onboard radar. It was as a result of Don Bennett's work at Pathfinder Force that the very first radar was put into aircraft. It was called H2S. And some of the discussion around how it ever became to be called H2S is that somebody somewhere said, well, H2S uh, is a formula for stuff that stinks, and we think this thing stinks. (laughs) But in fact, it turned out to be a marvellous invention. And they were able to put this H2S uh, ground mapping radar into aircraft and trialled by the Pathfinder Force. And it turns out to be an extremely accurate means of seeing targets on the ground at night time, even through cloud.
0: And then the genius of Bennett, I guess, was to bring together other Technologies and procedures as well and combine them? Was, was that sort of the genius that he brought to this?
1: Absolutely. Another of the things that they were working on was what would be regarded as um, marking technology as they could identify the targets more easily on the ground now. But what they needed to do is they needed to mark them so that the main force of bombers coming along behind could actually see. So they developed a whole pile of pyrotechnics in different colours that were called target indicators and these were in reds and greens and yellows and that was one part of it and the other part was that they came up with illumination flares and so you'd end up with the pathfinder force uh, developing different roles where some would go in and they would drop these illumination flares across the targets to light them up And then the uh, other crews would go in with their target indicators, whether they're reds or yellows or greens, and they would work to drop those accurately on the targets. And then there was somebody who was superintending it all who would then say, all right, main force in. The red one is the one that you bomb on. Go and bomb on the red or go and bomb on the green. And uh, they would be able to see this from a long way out the bombers coming in at night time, we'd be able to see the ground illuminated and these various coloured markers on the ground and be able to come in and and bomb on that. Did Bennett
0: take a personal role in the training and the development of the training of the crews
1: to do this? One of the things that he had learnt all the way back when he was starting to fly on flying boats back in 1933 at Calshot uh, from a fellow called Laddie Clift, who basically he had an enormous regard for was the best place to learn is in the air. Mm. And so when he took over at uh, uh, Pathfinder Force, one of the things that he insisted on was not only that he obtained the best crews, but he trained them to the highest possible standard that they would be flying constantly, even if they weren't going on operations over Germany, they would be up in the air and that they would be practising, practising, practising. He also insisted that uh, if you take a crew of seven on a Lancaster, that basically it wasn't just every man learning his job, whether it was navigator or pilot or bomb aimer or gunner, they all learnt one another's jobs Mm. as well. So he set the highest possible level for training and you keep at it incessantly, you train, you train, you train. And then on top of that he started to instigate this scheme of, well, we will analyse photographs that are taken over the targets and we will actually relate that to the work that we are doing and dropping the target indicators, etc. and we'll measure the accuracy and we will work out new tactics by which we can be even more accurate. And then we will train our crews to become even more accurate. So at every possible angle, Bennett was raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar. He was relentless.
0: So how successful was Pathfinder Force?
1: Incredibly successful. We do know that uh, it proved itself quite quickly. Bomber Harris, uh, Air Officer Commanding in Chief of Bomber Command, had got the right guy in the job because of that relentless focus on navigation and the way Bennett went about tackling the role. I understand that Bennett did not take a day off from the first the fifth of july 1942 to the end of the war in may 1945
0: i think uh, Pathfinders became renowned for hitting specific kinds of targets too didn't they almost unhittable you know or untargetable uh, places is that right
1: as the war progressed if we look at what happened after D-Day, which was the sixth of June, forty-four, and the invasion of the continent by the uh, by the Allies, um, certain targets became extremely important to hit. Um, we can look at the different types of targets. Uh, key amongst them was the uh, the oil plants; those plants that were producing uh, petrol, as we would call it, for the use in the Uh, German war machine, putting the planes in the air, putting the tanks on the ground, uh, enabling convoys to to actually bring troops up to the front line etc. So they became specific targets that they would want to hit. Um, U-boat pens. The, uh, the RAF had come up with some very, very large bombs, uh, 12,000 pounders and even 22,000 pounders. And once they learned that they could drop those accurately and they could get through all that heavy concrete in U-boat pens, they started to target those. Railway marshalling yards. Uh, there were various canals that were used by the Germans to transport raw materials, say, from the Ruhr. Uh, to various factories and uh, the Dortmund-Ems Canal, for instance, and they targeted those uh, relentlessly. So, yes, there was a number of quite specific targets where they were able to target them with a minimum number of civilian casualties.
0: Now, the Don Bennett room here at the QAM has been established specifically in recognition of his role and his importance Can you just tell us how it came to be here and what kinds of things are here?
1: We all have a great debt of gratitude to Alan Vile. Alan Vile, who uh, has now passed away, uh, was the former president of the Pathfinder Force Association in Queensland and had a very, very strong role in the Pathfinder Force Association in Australia generally. He was a personal friend of Don Bennett's and had been for many, many years. And uh, he made it a lifetime quest of his to have Don Bennett recognised for the contribution that he had made. Towards the end of Don Bennett's life, Don passed away in 1986. Don decided that he wanted to have his personal collection returned to Australia. And after he passed away in 1986, his wife, Lee, who had also been very, very important in the Pathfinder Force Association, sat down with Alan Vile in England and agreed that his collection from their home at Deepwood House, Buckinghamshire, would come to Australia. And with the RAAF's support, that material was brought here and some of it is in the office here now. There's a couple of other parts to this collection. Alan Vile himself had collected quite a bit of Don Bennett memorabilia over the years that Don Bennett had given him. And also in the collection is all the material that Alan Vile collected from his time as the president of the Pathfinder Force Association. So we have three collections in one.
0: This is a unique collection, isn't it? What's your role here?
1: Well, I came in about 18 months ago. I was actually working on a wartime biography of a Pathfinder, uh, Keith Watson, who was a pilot in 97 Squadron. And I found out through uh, an acquaintance that there was a collection of Pathfinder material here. I wasn't actually aware that that was the Don Bennett collection at the time. But I got talking to Richard Clarkson Uh, who is on the executive here. And his father, Kel, was a Pathfinder. And he showed me through here and I saw a lot of the material and I said, "Um, Richard, who's working on this? And at this stage they didn't have anybody working on it. And so I saw an opportunity to bring my expertise to bear. And so my role is uh, simple, straightforward and lengthy, which is to catalogue everything Mm -hmm in the collection here and where possible to digitize Mm. we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of documents and letters and all sorts of things and i'm in the process of cataloguing and digitizing those
0: Congratulations and good on you for doing that, because if that's not done, collections like this um, serve no purpose, do they, if uh, we can't access them and learn from them and acknowledge the, uh, the reason that they've been collected in the first place. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like we, as always, have just scratched the surface and I would love to come back to this topic and this story again. All the very best with your ongoing research and cataloging and all the, you know, the minutiae that are in front of you, because it's a it's a job that has to be done. And I I know you do it out of respect for those who've gone before us. And uh, this is a contribution that is quiet and may not be noticed by very many people. So congratulations on what you're doing. Congratulations on the book. I'm going to get one that's signed and I would like to talk to you again. So thanks very much for the time you've spent here today.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. There's certainly a lot more to talk about.
0: So that's our episode. Don't forget Ian Campbell's book, Thinks He's a Bird, the biography of wartime Air Force pilot Keith Watson, available from Booktopia as an ebook and from all good bookstores. Thank you for listening. It's been good knowing you're there. Please pass the word around that MAC-1 is worth subscribing and listening to. And stay in touch via email or the Facebook group or the QAM website. I'm Gary Hills, and this has been Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. Come and visit us soon. Bye for now.